Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out today. Today, my guest is Eric Ron, and if you're not familiar with him, Eric is an American producer, mixer, and songwriter based out of Los Angeles. He's worked with artists such as Panic at the Disco, Set It Off, Issues, Godsmack, Motionless in White, Bless the Fall, and so many more. And in today's episode, we get into all the cool things that Eric has been working on, and we have a really great chat all about the idea of being a writer and writing with other people and, you know, getting into the world of co-writing and how to perfect your craft as a songwriter, all of that kind of stuff. Because I know that a lot of you guys listening started off as musicians and songwriters yourself. And maybe that's how you got into the world of recording your music or working with others. And I know for a lot of you, the songwriting part is such an important skill to you. And you want to be able to you know, not just use your engineering skills, but also exercise your songwriting skills and collaborate with others and all that kind of stuff too. So yeah, Eric is a songwriter who has done really, really well for himself. And he's worked with some amazing bands, like I mentioned earlier. So in this episode, we cover a lot about that idea of writing and writing with others and negotiating songwriting credits and royalties and all that kind of stuff. This should all be really important stuff to you if you are a songwriter. So I think you're going to really enjoy this one. And Eric is such a great storyteller. Like you can't help but just be engulfed in his stories. He's just like very animated and very detail oriented. And, you know, it's just really entertaining. So I really enjoyed this episode, and uh, I can't wait for you to hear it. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Eric Ron, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. What's going on, man? Hey, how are you? It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome, man. Thank you. For people who might not be familiar with you and your background and all the cool stuff that you're up to these days, can you give us that history of you know who you are, how you got into this, and ultimately what you're working on today? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm Eric, and uh, I'm a producer, I'm a songwriter, I'm a mixer, um, I engineer my own stuff. I, I have an engineer as well. And um, I've been out, I've been doing this since 2005 professionally, which is crazy to think about. Uh, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like it's been six months. Uh, but uh, I kind of, I started out um, as an engineer, then moved my way into production, moved my way into songwriting. And I always kind of mix as I go. So I ended up just doing a lot of mix gigs and then, you know, I kind of just flip between everything. So uh, I work mainly in the rock genre. I also do a lot of pop music as well. So I kind of, and and a lot of the music I do is a hybrid of both genres together, multiple yeah. genres combined. Love it. So how did you ultimately like get into like recording and mixing and all that stuff to begin with? So I got into recording. Uh, so ultimately, so I was, um, I was uh, a huge new metal kid. I loved hip hop. I loved rock. Like, you know, uh, I'm actually, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I'm an R and B guy. So like my favorite stuff growing up was like boys to men, Brandy. And then I also loved like green days, Dookie and offspring and stuff like that. So when like new metal was introduced into my life, I'm like, what is this? Like, this is everything I wanted at once, you know? So like when there was, you know, corn was like, pfft, you know, like uh, my dad took me to a concert, my very first concert when I was 10 years old, it was Metallica and Corn opened. Nice. And 
I never heard anything like that in my life. And it just like blew me away. And I became this huge, massive new metal kid. <laughs> and um, I watched this DVD where I saw them making the second record, Life is Peachy. And um, their producer, Ross Robinson, was just, it blew my mind that someone could get someone to like laugh, cry, give emotion, like just give everything they had. And like, it was game over for me. Like, that was what I wanted to do. And no one was going to talk me out of it. Like I wanted to make people cry the way Ross Robinson did, you know, <laughs> Love it. That's, what I, that's what I wanted. It was that, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. So then like, you know, you ultimately, yeah, you got exposed to the production world through that DVD and all that. And then, mm. you know, where, where did it go from there? Like, obviously at that point you were like, okay, I'm in, like, I got to figure out how to get into this stuff. So was it just like, did you go to school for this kind of stuff to learn it? Or was it just all self-taught? I did. So or? I was kind of a, a bit of a computer nerd growing up. And uh, I did end up finding my way into like downloading certain programs from like Cool Edit Pro to Cakewalk Sonar, I think. And then, then I bought like a digital Roland system that had faders because you know when you're starting you're like if you have faders you're, you're killing it you're a professional now that I think that about point, it yeah. i could have just spent that on like a pro tools rig and you know like yeah. then i eventually moved to pro tools and then i went to musicians institute okay so i went there for they had a recording engineering program so now i don't even think that exists but back then you could go for just engineering and you know school didn't make a whole lot of sense to me i didn't really pay much attention and when I went to Musicians Institute, it all made sense. It just clicked. It was just nice. like, you couldn't keep me away. You know, I had a, like a 4.3 GPA or something with whatever. I, I barely graduated high school. So it was a nice little change. Sometimes you just have to find what like makes sense, you know, and it, it all made sense to me. Yeah, I feel like I, I relate to a lot of that. Everything, even from the, uh, yeah, the Cool Letter Pro, I think that was my first, first DAW, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> if you can call it that, I guess, uh, you know, and then I did the same thing. I got the rolling system as well with the faders and like, you know, yeah. like VS 2400 or whatever. And I was like, yeah, I made it was. it, you know, that's all you had. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. I just remember at that point of being like, I've made it. I have a professional studio. There's faders in front of me now, you know, <laughs> but I need to be honest with you about something. So I did my band's album, uh, I think it was my junior year of high school, on that Roland. I did it in mono. I didn't know there was stereo. Oh, so, yeah. I'm pretty sure I did the same thing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that's embarrassing. You know, like if, if anyone looks it up, the, band's, the band was called Floorbound. And um, it's, it's all down the center. And it, uh, I think I got uh, disc makers to master it. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, it's not my most proud moment, but we all have to have those growing pains. Hey, I'm sure you learned a lot about uh, frequency masking. You know, if everything's all in mono, you're 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 hearing everything you know, fight for the same space, right? <laughs> but I also didn't know what auto tune was, and I sang that whole album. I was the lead singer, and so I'm very proud of that. There was there was no pitch correction, so <laughs> y'all are gonna get the raw dog uh, manual vocal. Yeah, well, there, hey, there's something to be said for like you know growing up without knowing about all these like tools that you can use because then, yeah, like, yeah. it does force you to like get it right at the source and like you know not rely on some other tools because these days there's so many musicians that are just like oh yeah like yeah i know that's not the best take you can fix it with autotune or whatever right so there's there's yeah. something to be said for like no just do it right you know the truth is i think our ears are very uncomfortable when we hear something not perfectly in pitch i think we did it to ourselves Artists don't work as hard on pitch because they know it's going to get fixed. Now, even live, you have pitch correction and, you know, and you can't be mad at it. You, you can't hate the game. 
It's just how it is now. And our ears are so used to perfect that when something is a little bit off, like even now, I think there's like when I hear an Alicia Keys record, she doesn't like using auto tune. And I always go like, oh, because she's like just so a little bit flat on everything. <laughs> and it like bothers me. And I'm like, this should not bother me. This should actually make me stoked, you know? Yeah. But it just, it is what it is. It's so true though. And, you know, I think so many people think of like, yeah, these auto tune or like, you know, like, uh, you know, people who edit their drums real tight, all that kind of thing. You know, they'll think that like, this is like cheating. And it's like, yeah, maybe it kind of is, but it's like, that's kind of, the expectation people have these days. So if you're not doing it, you're doing your music to service and yep. it's never going to sound as good as what's on the radio because it's, it's, you're not taking the steps that people took to get there, you know? Exactly. We're used to perfect. Yeah. And I use it as a weapon too. I love perfect timing. It really glue. It honestly makes the mix easier when everything's glued together. I a hundred percent agree with that. And I think that that's something a lot of people don't talk about is that like when everything is perfectly in time, there's actually more space between the notes because you're not hearing flaming and all that other stuff that eats up all that space. So it makes more, it gives your mix so much more room for like reverbs and stuff like that, that can fill in that space clearly and not be covered by all this other crap that's in the way. So yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I love that you brought that up. That's cool. So, um, so yeah, like you got into all this stuff, you you were making your, your mixes on the, the Roland and, you know, eventually did all the musician Institute stuff. So then like, at what point was it like, okay, now I'm going to start like doing this professionally and recording other people and getting paid for that. Like what, what did that happen after school or was that something you were doing all along or? So I went to school, it was a six month program and, um, I got, so my dream studio was a studio in Los Angeles called NRG. NRG did all the corn records, all the incubus records, Limp Biscuit records. Like it is a incredible studio. And I got an internship there within like a month. And I was like, holy shit, wow. like, here we go. Like, this is everything, you know? <laughs> and they chew me up and spat me out. You know, at the end of three months, they said, why would we pay you? Um, we can just get someone new for free. And I'm like, fuck LA. I don't need LA. So I moved <laughs> back up to San Francisco where I grew up. And while I was there, I'm like, what am I doing here? So I had, I had some friends, my old roommate, you know, he was, he went to MI after me, he knew some guys. So, you know, I was like, I got to get back down. So, uh, I went to a party in LA that, that one of my best friends, Marty, uh, invited me to, and I met, and I met this guy and he was like, Hey, I'm actually looking for an assistant. And it was a studio in Chatsworth called Cornerstone. And as soon as I got that opportunity. I was like, I'm gone. I can't, like, I need to be back in LA. So I was, I took a brief absence for about nine months, 10 months. I moved to LA and I was going to work at this studio. I'm like, all right, I'm in. They had a nice SSL board. And two days after I move, the guy goes, Hey man, we're closing. I was like, you're what? And he goes, we're closing <laughs> the studio. Um, Sorry. I was like, you, you knew I was moving here. Yeah, you could have told me goes, this like two weeks ago. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, man, sorry. Best of luck. And like hangs up. And I'm like, what? Like, are you fucking kidding me? And so I was very depressed as you can imagine. And I got a job at Best Buy selling TVs. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to work on my music. Like this isn't going to stop me. I was like very energized. And I got a gig uh, maybe like two weeks into my job. Um, to edit some drums for for this band called After Midnight Project. This was 2005, September 2005. 
And I'm like, all right, great. And I go there and I start editing drums and which, um, I kind of started my career being like, I can tune better than anyone and I can edit drums better than anyone. So like, that's what I had to make sure I was the best at. So anyone, this question will probably come up later, but like find what you're amazing at and be better at it than everyone else and, and just be relentless. So that's what I did. I said, I can do this. So I came in, I started editing drums and in the other room, I hear like screaming. I hear like people shouting at each other. I'm like, what the hell is this? Like the first day I'm on this job, First day, I'm really getting paid to do something for a living, you know, to do music. So I'm like, let's go. I don't care what's happening. And I hear all this commotion. And all of a sudden, this guy just like barges in the door. And it's like out of a movie. This like, just, I don't know what a producer looks like. We all know what a producer looks like, like <laughs> in the movies. It was that guy, like kind of mullet, mustache, like <laughs> look like a rock and roll legend, like studded belt, you know, whatever. And, and he was just like, who are you? And I'm like, um. I'm Eric. He's like, you know how to record? And I was like, yeah. He goes, well, come on. And I go into the other studio and I start like tracking guitar on something. And he goes like, you know how to mix? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, all right, get in. Let's see what you got. And this guy threw me in. And there's something about having a proverbial gun to your head that shows you who you are. And I rose to the occasion and I ended up being the chief engineer there for a couple of years. Love it. Being there at the right place, right time, and being able to show up and not fuck it up too much. Yeah, dude, I love that. That's such a good story. And and I love that you said, you know, you, you wanted to be that guy who could tune or edit better than anyone else. And I think that that... That is such a, you know, for anyone who is trying to get into that, like, bigger studio world, like, that is that is the place to start. You know, if you're going to be an assistant, you need to get good at that stuff, you know. Aside from getting coffee orders right and all that kind of stuff, like, editing and tuning, all that stuff is going to be, like, one of your first big gigs that you got to rise to the occasion for. So um, I think that that's such an important thing. Yeah, and everyone tells you, like, look, you got to be able to clean the floors. you got to be able to do the coffee thing because you need to show your attention to detail, like, blah, blah, blah. That's cool. Yes. If you can't get a coffee order right, I probably won't trust you with vocals. But like at the same time, they're so different. Yeah, totally. And so uh, really, the attention to detail for me is in vocal tuning. It's in editing. It's in even drum samples, things like that, where like everyone knows how to do that stuff, but it's who knows how to do it the right way that matters to me. Mm-hmm. And I've had the same engineer for over 10 years, but... You know, when I had interns back in the day, uh, that was an important detail was like, can you line things up the way and not just like not tab the transient? Because believe it or not, tab the transient is not perfect. It's not even close. So it's Mm -hmm. like these little details that that show me like if how serious you are, you know? Yeah. So so speaking of that, then, like while we're on that topic, then, you know, what kind of details are the things that you're looking for when you're when you're editing your drums? And I think it's. You know, you can use Beat Detective. And for those who aren't familiar with Pro Tools, like that's the best way to edit drums. And Beat Detective is like 85% of the way there, but it's not 100. If you really go in under the hood, like it's not to the grid. And it's close. And if you're in a rush, it'll do the job, but it's not the way that I do it. It's not the way that I was taught. It's not the way that I would teach someone. Gotcha. And so even using sound replacer and like drum trigger uh, plugins. They are not accurate. They are not sample accurate. They are close, but I can hear it. I can hear it in 
in music all the time where I can hear the snare flaming or the kick flaming because someone just wanted to get it done and move on. Yeah. And I, the, the attention is really, in, you know, like I do uh, drum samples by hand. I just sit there and I put on a show and I, and I just go in it. <laughs> have like a little thing and like my hands are moving all crazy. And uh, that's the way that even, you know, 15 years later, I still do it that way. There's it's still the technology did not get better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting because like I, I see that with my students all the time too, where it's like people will, you know, just throw an instance of slate trigger on and and you know leave the plug in live and this and that. And then I'm like, oh yeah, it's missing that hit, or there's an extra snare hit all of a sudden there, or yeah, there is uh you know phase issues on that on a couple hits here and there. So it's like you're right, like you have to be really paying attention to all of those little details to make sure that everything is lined up and properly hitting at the right spots and right velocities and all that kind of stuff that goes into making it sound realistic and good, you know? Yep. And if you edit the drums right, it, putting in the samples is a lot easier. Yeah. So if you get it done at the source, then that sampling, you can almost just tap, just like put it on the grid. You could put the snare sample on the grid and it should theoretically be really close. Mm-hmm. And then you, and I always do a checks and balances process to Absolutely. make sure that, it, you know, like you won't see a snare in the wrong place in my sessions. You just won't. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> hey, that's and, and, and your background, you're, are you a guitar player or a drummer? So I'm actually, so I do play guitar. Okay. Um, my main instrument is singing, but I would say guitar is like the next vessel I use to, to work on stuff, but I okay. can play a little of everything. Uh, I can play drums with a gun to my head. It was like, play something. I'd be like, okay. Like, I don't, I don't know if that'll ever happen. Hopefully not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I'm always curious. Cause I feel like drummers tend to be like the, the most meticulous about editing drums, you know, cause it's like they're, they're, they're thinking about yeah. how, how would I play it? Right. So it's, it's always interesting to like see other people who maybe didn't start at drums and, uh, you know, are, are approaching drums from like that serious of a perspective, which, Hey, everyone should be doing it. Right. But no, I think it's cause I'm, I'm a secret drummer. I'm a mouth drummer. No one can go better than me. And I speak a lot of mouth drums and, and I produce drums really well. Um, and when I was 10, I took drum lessons cause that's what I really wanted. And my dad said, okay, if you take drum lessons for two years, uh, I'll get you a drum set for your 12th birthday. And then my 12th birthday came and there was a guitar sitting there and I was <laughs> like, dad, what the hell is this? And he's like, drums are just too loud. You know, like here's a guitar. And I was like, oh, I hate you, dad. And then sure enough, I like picked up a guitar and like wrote a couple songs that day. It was like, okay, maybe, maybe this works for me. Yeah, so was, uh, and and funny enough, like when I built my own studio years later and my dad came to see it for the first time and he sees that I have like a drum set in there, he goes to sit down on it. I'm like, Mm-mm, no, 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 no. You are not playing a drum set. It's too loud. <laughs> he was like, what? I'm like, all right, fine. Go ahead. <laughs> I love it, man. Hey, well, it sounds like the guitar thing worked out for you. You wrote a couple of songs as soon as you got it. And, uh, you know, that, that definitely has been a, a trend in your career too, that like, you know, you've gone in addition to all that engineering stuff that you've worked on, like you're a great songwriter as well. And, you know, I'm curious to dig into that a little bit too, because I feel like a lot of people listening to this podcast, um, start as musicians who are writing songs and they get into it because, you know, they're maybe trying to record their own music and, and that's kind of where it starts. And then, you know, they fall in love with the process and eventually start to record other people and, and branch out from there. Um, but what, what's, what I'm curious about with you is that like on a lot of the records that you work on, you're credited as a songwriter and an engineer or producer. You kind of do it all. Um, and I'm curious to know a little bit more about that part of it, like how you integrate the songwriting with the productions that you're working on, because you're working with some bigger artists. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, 
the idea of maybe approaching a bigger band and being like, hey, I got, I got some songs, you know, it's, it's kind of yeah. like that classic drummer joke, right? Like, you know, like, what's, what's the last thing the drummer said to the band, right? Um, let's write some songs. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, when it comes to like approaching these bands or working with these artists, you know, how do you introduce the topic of songwriting with these people? You know, is it something that like very early on you're having these kind of conversations like, you know, I'm I'm a pretty good songwriter too. I got some ideas or like how how does that how does that come out? Well, I think when you're so, when you're doing a project, I think the first thing you have to do is build trust. That goes that goes for any role you have is you have to show the artist that you are trustworthy and that you can see their vision rather than what you see for them, unless that's what they're going to you for. Some people are like, please make me, I don't know what I want. And then you have to just go for it. And it either works or it doesn't. But what I love to do in a project, especially with an established band, but this goes for new bands too, is that I just want to be one of the members. Because I consider me your fifth member, your sixth member. And I just want to help in areas that you might not, not you might not have thought of yet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for instance, I think how I kind of got into songwriting with bands and I do really songwrite on almost everything that I produce. It's very rare that I don't touch something unless that was just what I was hired to do. So composition wise, you know, I'll listen to a demo and I'll say, Hey, like, I really think you could benefit from having this kind of dynamic and go into this. And like, you know, uh, I hear a melody that's kind of more like this. And then people went like, Oh, that's better. Let's do that. And I went like, (laughs) All right. You know, like, and you don't really know until you just go for it. And at first you might get a like, like, you know, but that goes with building trust is Mm -hmm. that you got to, you got to kind of also read the room and know like when someone is open to it, because some artists are not open to it. And you just have to understand that and be like, all right, I threw it out there. You sent it right back. Cool. We're done. I'm not going to suggest anything else, you know? Mm -hmm. And so building a rapport with the artist gives you that ability to kind of wear their shoes and kind of know what they might want and know what they're just kind of missing. Sometimes artists forget how to do themselves. And that's kind of something I've learned in working with bigger artists that have been around for 20 years is like, they kind of, they forget too. It's like, maybe they're not as angsty as they used to be. Maybe they're not as happy as they used to be. And, and yet they have this brand they need to uphold and, as a producer and a songwriter, you kind of have to fill in the empathy they might be missing. And I think a lot of artists are grateful when you kind of remind them of like where they fit in because it's just, we're all going through something, you know? Yeah. I think that's a really important point to bring up. It was like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. A lot of the times these people don't realize that they're not saying the words that they mean to say and, yep. and like being able to be that person that can be like, I think you can go in this direction. I think that's a really important skill. And obviously you're right. Like you have to build that trust with people to get them to listen to you and take you seriously. Yeah. But yeah. And truthfully, it's the hate that binds us all, you know, and, and I was able to really make a career off of writing breakup songs with artists that were also going through the same thing, you know, and, and having that bond and making art can be dangerous because you really channel something special when you, when you're on the same page. Absolutely. So it kind of sounds like you know, you'll be working with these artists and then in the moment you're like, oh yeah, there, there's, this needs to be reworked and that kind of thing. Um, 
So then I'm curious to know, like, as far as like getting a credit as a writer or perhaps mm-hmm. even like getting royalty splits and that kind of stuff, like, where does that part of the conversation happen? Like, because obviously, like, obviously in the moment you're just like, yeah, I want to serve the song. Like, let's keep the session going and get the best results. Right. But like that to get actually the credit for it and to get the royalties or whatnot, like that's, that's a, a deeper conversation that some people are just like, they're afraid to talk about, right? Because they think it's going to yeah. ruin a session, that kind of thing. So um, how does that get introduced in, in the types of projects you're working on? So what I would say is never bring it up in the middle of a song. Never bring it up that day. You got to just stay creative and in the moment. And then once the song is done, once the mix is sent, whatever it is, then you get into that stuff. So never bring it up because you never want someone to not take your idea because they don't want to give you a percentage. You never want someone thinking about percentages at the time that you're working. Just create. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who's doing what until later. Yeah. And if someone doesn't want your idea because they don't want to share the percentage, then like you probably shouldn't be in the room with that person anyway. You know, like you want to work with people who are open-minded and want what's best for the song. If everyone's not on the same page with that, then that's a whole other conversation. Fair. But typically, you know, before I had management and teams and publishers, it was like we'd write this song together. Um, I'd finish it out, send a mix over. And then once it was closer to release, I'd say, hey, guys, I'd love to just confirm writing split percentages, make sure you guys are good with it. And typically the artist will want you to go first. And um, that's always scary because you, you think that someone's <laughs> going to be upset, but like, you just got to go. A lot of people just don't know how to split a song, you know, and there's, and there truthfully is so many different ways to split songs. If you're just writing with one person, clearly 50, 50 makes the most sense. Right. But then sometimes a band comes in, right. There's five members. And then, so I'm like, wait, so I did the same amount of work, but I got to split it 19 ways because there's six, six members. It's <laughs> like, uh, you know, and like, Ultimately, you have to see what works for you because some people just sit on the couch and, you know, there's like a Nashville way that songwriting goes where it's like if they're in the room like that counts. And then there's other ways where it's like, well, he didn't do anything. I'm not including him. But then some members split their percentages up because it's not just about the song. It's about the 18 months of touring that go afterwards. It's like we're doing the grunt work. Why can't we be involved in it even though we didn't create? Ultimately, those are decisions that in every artist is different. Every band is different. And so I try to just be the most fair as I can because it's not worth not getting the song just because of that 6% or 5% or this, you know? And, yeah. and some you got to pick your battles and see what's worth fighting for. And the conversations are always uncomfortable, but they have to happen. Otherwise, you're just another Hollywood stereotype that was just like, oh man, I didn't get writing on this huge hit 30 years later and you're doing a VH1 behind the music. And like, (laughs) you just can't do that. Like no one wants that. Yeah. No, I think you're right though. And and you just have to get, you just have to keep the momentum going in the studio. And I think that it's like, by doing that, you prove your worth. You prove that value, right? And then people are more willing to give it to you because you know, you've shown that, yeah, you do have great ideas. And and it's, it's, it's a way easier negotiation to have after the fact rather than like, bringing it up right in the moment or like, you know, beforehand. And then maybe that gets people a little hesitant to like accept ideas and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, they never see those great ideas actually come to fruition because they don't try them because they're, you know, they're being penny pinchers or whatever, you know? So, yeah, it's really important to make sure that you, that you have different hats on at different times and you shouldn't blur those lines and you shouldn't be talking about certain things when you just want to like stay creative. 
So it's really important to just stay in the moment and let it, let it go where it wants to go. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone has ever talked about a writing percentage in the middle of a session. Um, I've, I've been part of when I was just engineering, like early on in my career, I saw when I was doing like hip hop songs, um, I'd see people writing lyrics and they like initial their lyric for each thing. <laughs> like, but that was, you know, a long time ago. Like you yeah. don't see that too often anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting approach, right? It's, it's one of those things that I, I love talking to songwriters about this kind of stuff because it is a tricky subject. And, you know, I think there are a lot of different ways to go about approaching it, but, um, at the end of the day, it's like if you are trying to get paid for your for your skills, and you know you're trying to make a serious living at this, you do have to consider all this stuff as as uncomfortable as those conversations are, right? So, because yeah. um, they yeah. get they get way worse later. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know? and so you gotta you gotta do it while it's fresh. You know, sometimes you just you put yourself in a situation where you want to be like the nice guy and be agreeable. And it can get you in trouble. And so you really have to toe the line between good business and a good partner. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so speaking of co-writing, I read this article. Um, it was all about like the making of Godsmack's uh, When Legends Rise. And uh, which is, that was a record that you worked on and that you did some co-writing on as well. Um, and it sounded like at the time when they were making that record, it, like they were trying to go in a bit of a newer direction. And you know, for a band like that, that has such a big history and a, a specific sound that they were kind of known for, you know, as as someone who is coming in, working at that band and, and now writing with them, what does that look like for you? Like, as far as like straddling the line of, you know, pleasing some fans that are used to the band having a certain sound and, and then, you know, pushing it in a new direction because that's what the band wants to do. Like, how do you how do you go about approaching those kind of situations? So with the Godsmack record, it was very interesting because the whole relationship started from a co-write. And it was like, hey, would you like to write with Sully from Godsmack? And I was like, of course I would. Like, we don't know if it's going to be for Godsmack or Solo. We think it'll be Godsmack. I was like, great. Like, what are they going for? And the answer was, we don't know. All we know is he really likes Adele right now. I was like, okay what do I do with this information? So I truthfully, I I was thinking about an idea a lot of times before like the first writing session with someone, I'll have something ready to go. That's like in the back, just in case they're like, do you have anything? I'm like, Oh, I thought about this. And that kind of came up. It was like very tongue in cheek. And if you know, Sully, like he's, he's, he's a mass hole, you know, he's from Massachusetts. He's very (laughs) like, well, what do you got? Like, what do you want to do? Like, let's do it. And I played this thing that was like, kind of, kind of reminiscent of an Adele song I was listening to, but like a little more rock version. And, and he was like, huh? He goes, it's a little lethargic for me. And I was like, okay. He goes, what if we like sped that up? And like, so I played the same riff a little bit faster and three and a half hours later, we had Bulletproof, which was the, the first single on the album that is now about to go two times platinum in it. And it frankly changed my entire career. Wow. And so it came from a four hour session uh, from someone I didn't know that uh, I just, and I had no references and we just went for it. And he called me the next day and he was like, I really enjoyed that. What do you think about doing a whole record together? And I'm like, okay, cool. (laughs) You know, like, yeah, he was like, no, I'm serious. Let's go. And, and I'm like, all right. So he goes, you know, like, send me a quote and, you know, and, and so 
our people started talking and it was between John Feldman, who I worked for for a few years before I was out on my own and Howard, Howard Benson, who's a prolific producer as well. And myself. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'm not getting this record. Like, forget about it, you know? <laughs> and maybe two months later he goes, are you ever going to like turn in a proposal? And I was like, Oh, you're serious. Okay, sure. And then like a week later, they're like, you're doing the record. And I was just like, all right, here we go. You know? And, and so we sat down, you know, and they're, they're quite a bit older than me. And so I was, I was ready for it, but I wasn't sure if they were ready for it. And so we, we did have a discussion that, you know, the very first day, you know, I sat them down and said, all right, guys, like, I know we want a little bit more modern. We want like a new approach on this. Um, I'm going to push you guys and you tell me when I've gone too far. And so that was kind of the relationship we started where it's like, all right, I'm going to try some things that maybe you're not used to. You know, they were used to rehearsing the entire album front to back musically. And we didn't do it that way at all. Like we did do live pre-production. I went in there and I was with Shannon and we're going over like, what if the drum beat was a little bit more like this and this. And so like we did that a little bit, but they were not used to like flying parts of songs, you know, like we did, I remember the first song we did, I think it was Bulletproof and Robbie, the bass player was with me and we were tracking and maybe the whole process took about 25 minutes, maybe less. And he was like, did I play the whole song? I'm like, no, you didn't need to. Like I flew this, we did this, we put this here. And he was like, do I need to do it again? I'm like, no, we're good. Like, it's all good. <laughs> like he, he didn't understand that. Like we didn't have to play the whole song. And he kept going into my engineer, Anthony's room while he was editing and being like, do I need to play that better? Like, do I need to play that again? And we're like, no, you're fine. He was like, I don't know what, I don't know what the hell I played. It just like was moving so <laughs> fast for them. And it was so funny because we're used to that. And it's a very modern way to record. It's like, you really don't have to play the chorus four times. Like we got it, you know, <laughs> unless there's like variations between transitions and things like that. So, yeah. uh, you know, that's kind of how that album went. And after Bulletproof came in, the band trusted me. Like after like, you're that guy, like, course, okay, yeah. like we know that we're going to be in good hands. Just like, don't really, their only note to me was like, don't make us sound like Lincoln Park. Which like it wasn't going to, but like you know, they just wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to be like too digital. Yeah, interesting. I, I love that, dude. That's a great story. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting because like you know you, you kind of touched on the idea of like before you start a co-writing session, like how you prepare for that, and like you know how you like to come in with you know a little bit of knowledge if you can, and and at least have some songs in the in your back pocket. And I think that that's a it's probably the best way to start a songwriting or a co-writing session. I think, you know, just at least, you know, cause otherwise if you're just staring at a blank screen, sometimes it's like, what do we do? Right. And, yeah. and, and, and I'm kind of curious to know, like, um, obviously you're, you're a prolific writer, you're writing a lot of things. So you, you have that back catalog of stuff to come into a session with, but how do you go about approaching the topic of like writer's block? You know, like, when, like, is that something you ever experienced yourself and, and how do you go about navigating through that and, you know, getting to the other side? So I have been fortunate enough to never experience writer's block. I think I just approach it a little bit differently is that I just already know that not every song is going to be a slam dunk smash hit. And I didn't know that forever. You just got to, you just got to step up to the plate and swing and not everything is going to be as good as you hope it is. 
not everything's going to be as bad as you think it is too. I think it's all about getting up and swinging. You just have to keep going. And every day I show up and I just swing. And you just, you never know how it's going to go. There are songs that I thought were terrible that artists love and put out and they're bigger songs. And there's songs that I think are going to be the biggest song. They're going to change my entire career and they don't do anything. And so you, it's not for me to determine. All I, all I can do is cue it up. And from where it goes from there, who knows? And so I've never really been like, oh my God, I don't, I don't know. I think a lot of people stop themselves from finishing a song because they don't think it's good enough. And I think you have to finish it. You have to finish that idea. You have to go in and prove to yourself that you're going to get this done. And you can always make it better. You can always go back. But if you just don't finish it, you're never going to go back and be like, oh, I had this one thing that like, but I didn't think it was good enough. So I stopped. Like no one else is going to think that, you know, it's like you can't reject your own idea. You got to see it through. I love that. I think that's great advice. And yeah, it just, it just forces you to like, just, yeah, see things through. And, and I think it's, it's an interesting thing too, because like you said, some of the songs that you least expect to do well for you, you know, that might inspire someone else, you know, like those ideas, even if it was just like something you just did to get done, like there could be something in there that then inspires a much bigger, better thing, you know, when you're, when you're writing with other people and, and, uh, it's it's such a interesting exercise to go through and and uh i think you're right I th- a lot of people do just stop themselves you know they yeah. might have that riff and they're like that's it that's all i got it's like no you need more like try try to get more you know there might be something yeah, cool yeah. that comes out of it yeah yeah absolutely and i think sometimes you don't have the 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 right lyric you don't have you don't know what you want to talk about i think lyrics are probably the hardest part when people think about writer's block um, and I think you just have to keep going with the melody. Maybe you just dive into the melody that day. Maybe you just, because for me, I like to do the melody and the lyric at the same time if I can, because it's such a stream of consciousness. I think you have to really push yourself on like why you chose that melody. What emotion were you feeling when, when you came up with that melody? Some people don't think like that. You know, I just found out recently that, like, for instance, I see colors with music. I think it's called like syn- synesthesia. Uh, I'm going to butcher the Syn- name of it. Synesthesia or something like that, right? Yeah. And so I thought everyone could see colors. Like, I th- when I think of a sad song, I think of like dark blues and grays and, and like a stormy sky, you know? And like some people don't, don't actually think like that at all. And so um, finding out those little tidbits of like, you know, when I think of a sad melody, I automatically picture words around it. I picture emotions around it and, and having that kind of empathy with your own melodies is super important because that tells me where it wants to go. It doesn't mean it was the best place it could go, but at least I'm getting close. Yeah. That's very cool. I, yeah. I'm always intrigued by people who have that, uh, synesthesia or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah synesthesia. That's what it's called. Yeah, and I just found out about this maybe in the last year. I, I just thought that's what everyone was like. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing, right? Cause it's, it's, uh, it, not everyone has that. And I think it's a, it's a very, um, unique way to get inspired by music. Right. So, yep. uh, very, very cool. Love it, man, dude. That's that, that. That's all really great advice as far as like the co-writing thing and and just or just being a writer in general and and practicing those those skills every day. And um, you know, I think 
obviously it's worked out for you. You know, you, you like you come into sessions with songs, and and that that's led to some great opportunities as a result of it. So uh, yeah, definitely. I, I've been I've been really lucky to be very well heard, and you know, a lot of times the best song I write with an artist is the first song that I write with them. I've had a lot of really good luck on the first songs. And <laughs> I, I know that not everyone has that experience. Some people have to have to establish a relationship with someone, like really get to that next tier. And like some of the biggest songs in my career have been the first time I've, I've written with someone, which is really fun. Like I think about it all the time where I'm like, all oh, pressure's on this first one's got to be amazing. You know, it's like, and I put that on myself and, and as my career has grown, and I'm like the guy that people go to, you know, like one of the scariest things for me ever was after the success I had with Godsmack, uh, the label, which is BMG, came to me and said, we really want you to do this with this band Bush. And I was a huge Bush fan growing up. And I was just like, oh boy, like I'm officially the guy that's like, we need, the, we need a hit. I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, like that for the first time, you know, because earlier in my career, I was so scared of the word hit. Because I used to say it like, oh man, that's a hit. And like an A&R from Roadrunner told me once, he goes, you're too quick to call things a hit. And like, it scarred me. Or like he said it to my manager, he didn't even say it to me. I was just like so butthurt by that, that like I never called something a hit. I was like, I'd call it a banger. I'd call it a smash. I'd call it anything but the word hit. Like that word scared me. It traumatized me. And when the first time I was told that something is a hit from someone or like the stats or I, even on my BMI sheet, I got a hit song bonus that hit that just hit me in the feels harder than anything in my career. It was like, I can actually call this a hit. Like that was insane to me. And then when artists were coming to me at, or like labels or <laughs> everyone was like, we need hits. I'm like, Oh my, like you're me. Like, fuck, you know, like, and, but I love that pressure. If, yeah. if you said to me, take a month to write a song and give it back to me in a month it would not be a good song. If you were like, I, in an hour, I need you to deliver me a song, it would probably be better, I swear to you. Mm -hmm. There's something about pressure. But I was also the guy growing up that didn't do his homework when he got home. I did my homework at 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. was my first class. <laughs> There's just been something about pressure that does well for me. And I can't explain it. I, I think you're right, though. It's just like you have to just keep keep at it, like, you know, like keep, keep forcing, uh, working those muscles and, and just keep pressuring yourself, give yourself tighter timelines. Cause like, you know, work will expand to the time you give it. Right. And so if you're going to give us, give yourself a month to write a song, you're going to spend a month to like, to the last minute. And it's probably not going to be that great. Cause you're going to just hum and haw over all, all over it, you know? And, you know, I yeah. think it's, uh, it, it is an interesting lesson to just like, keep, keep pushing yourself forward and, and make yeah. yourself turn things out fast. You know, and another, another thing that really worked for me is when I was writing for other people, I, I wanted to be really clear about that this is what I would do. This isn't what I thought a hit song should sound like. So for me, it was like I wanted to do the melody that I think would sound amazing here, not what a number one hit song would sound like there. And I think that's something I'm so proud of is that like the biggest compliment someone can ever give to me isn't, Oh my God, that mix is so big and loud and sick. Uh, like, you know, the, the snare drum, this, like, I don't care about any of that as much as I know an Eric Ron melody when I hear it, that's the biggest compliment I can ever get is like, I knew that song was written by you before I even looked it up like that to me, there's no greater compliment. 
Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, I mean, you don't want to just be chasing things that a hit, like quote unquote hit song sounds yeah. like. Cause you know, by the time, by the time you actually put out that song that you've now written to, to like mimic that other song, it's too late. People are already used to that other sound. Right. Yep. And, and look, a big part of like my songwriting sauce, for instance, is I take, I'm a big tempos guy. I love making sure the feel is right. And one of my biggest influences in the entire world is Drake. He's my number one favorite artist. A lot of people would know that because they see rock credits, right? But a lot of the biggest songs of my career are Drake tempos. We went after like a, a song on Take Care and just like getting that feel in there. And it's my influence. It's having... You know, I grew up with R&B. My favorite singer in the entire world is Brandy. And now it's this artist named Kehlani. And I apply those kinds of influences into rock music, which keeps it fresh for me, which makes it feel more pop. You know, I always tell modern rock artists now that like the hill that I want to die on is like creating a genre called active pop. Like it's active rock, but it's delivered to you in a way that feels like pop. Like, I hate that pop is so much bigger than rock, but I also understand why it is. There's certain, there's certain formulas that are so stuck with rock, and pop is now 10 times more innovative, which is the weirdest thing to say. Mm-hmm. Typically, pop is like watered-down garbage. Right now, it's innovative. Yeah, Rock in the last two years has been a lot more innovative, but before, it was extremely formulaic. For sure. Yeah, it's interesting, because I do feel that like the pop world for the last, like, I don't know, 15 years or probably even much longer, to be honest, decades, probably. Um, it's there's been a lot of a lot more collaboration in that scene, you know, and, mm-hmm. and there's, you'll find artists working with other artists. And because of that, I think you get that that um, fusion of different sounds and all that because people are collaborating and it's it's mixing different ideas. And I think rock is going to start to get that way. You know, It has been very much like the same formula over and over again. People don't want to co-write. They don't want to work with other people. It's just like this is the band and that's all you get. And I think now you're starting to see a little bit more of that collaboration stuff. And I think even as other genres, like even like country music, for example, is like leaning a lot more on the rock side these days. And I think as, yeah. as people start to see like that kind of crossover, we're going to see rock evolve from that. And I think we'll start to we'll start to get more collaborations and and maybe that genre will expand from yeah. there, you know. And I think a big part of being successful in the music industry is having something distinctive about you. And I think the biggest I think the biggest part of my career that helped me was that I was the pop guy in rock music. So one of the biggest honors is like we need a big chorus. Let's go to Eric. And like hearing that just made me want to work harder. You know, it didn't make me arrogant. It didn't make me, you know, like some of the producers I worked for in the past was like, my idea is better. Look at the plaques on my wall. And like, I always thought that was so stinky. And like, I just really want to let the work speak for itself. Even now, I'll suggest something once. The artist pushes back on it. Maybe I'll suggest it again. But other than that, I'll let it go. Like you got to be a goldfish and not be so onerous of your stuff and piss and moan about it. You got to just keep moving because ultimately, even a song that you think is amazing, if the artist is unhappy with it, they don't want to play that shit live. It it's gonna leave a blemish on that song, you know. Of course. And you won't always agree. And there are moments where it's like, hey, like trust me, like I know where this can go. And if an artist is still stubborn about it, I let it go, you know. But um, ultimately, having someone's trust is so important because it lets me do the song more justice, you know? Of course. So then when you're starting to produce a record, 
what's your typical process look like there? Like, where do you usually start with the songs? Like, how are you, um, how are you approaching these songs and, and potentially like the, the arrangements and all that kind of stuff? So when I start a record, typically I'll ask for any demos that an artist might have. Sometimes we start all from scratch. There's a few artists, I, I don't want to throw them under the bus, that just, they maybe got off a tour or something. They have no idea. So we're writing everything from scratch. Sometimes there's a riff. Uh, some bands with technology and, now, and how much production is easier these days, um, a lot of people have like full-blown instrumentals or full, full-blown demos. And then so I'll ask for stems or Pro Tools sessions or whatever they're working on. And we just kind of go through part by part, like, hey, this can be better, this can be better, you know, 12 years ago, I was having everyone plug into the live room and we were doing live pre-pro. <laughs> Obviously, those days are done. Uh, I'm very fortunate to be able to have been on the tail end of that. You know, I my whole career, you know, like when I first started, there were still like food budgets for labels. There was still, you know, um, same day couriers. You There would be someone from Capitol Records driving up to your studio to grab the hard drive. Like those days are so gone now. And so I was very fortunate to be able to be at the end of the like big money era of music to the download era to only digital to now you upload everything. And now with Spotify and everything, budgets are starting to get a little healthier in that regard. But I was lucky to have multiple facets of the music industry of where it was like, we're all getting rich to like everything sucks to like <laughs> this middle ground and now, now I don't even know what it is. It's this like, I feel like it's a little bit feast or famine, but there's a way to kind of have a small living without having to be like the most successful person or a nobody. And so um, I've had a lot of experience of all ranges of the music industry. And I think what um, what's important, what was the question again? I'm so sorry. Just we like can track that one back. No, it's all good. But like, as far as like approaching a new project, when like an artist comes to you with songs or, you know, maybe they don't have songs, you know, how, how do you generally approach your production? Uh, you know, your, those production jobs, like where do you start with that? So when I start a record, it goes from the pre-production phase. I think everything with a record should be pre-production and knowing exactly what you're going to get you know, not all lyrics have to be finished, but so I'll, I'll typically bring in um, any stems that could be, or I'll have someone play a scratch guitar. I'll put some MIDI drums around it. I want everyone to kind of know what it's going to feel like. And then maybe it's not finished lyrics. We could do scratch vocals, but I want people to know what the melody is going to be. I want the, the band to be really familiar with the melody. I want the artist to know what it's going to be like. Uh, sometimes the lyrics right there. Sometimes we wait. Sometimes it's just, there's holes, you know, I ultimately I'll do a pre-pro phase where you know exactly, you know, what the arrangement's going to be. And then if we like this song, great. It goes on the chart. We're going to make this song. Right. So I also like to do it in batches. So we don't sit here and do pre-production on 12 songs or 10 songs. Then we go, I'll do it in pieces. So we'll do three songs at a time. We'll do five songs at a time. Because ultimately, what happens when you do them in pieces, you'll finish, let's say you do five songs with, a, with an artist. Um, what happens after those five songs is you kind of start to get a landscape of what the, the body of work's going to actually be. And you go, okay, we've got this super heavy song. We've got this really emotional, dark ballad. We've got a song that we think could be a great radio song, right? It's like, okay, 
So then we look at the next batch of these demos. We go, well, that one's probably a lot like this one. Maybe we don't need that. Uh, we should definitely have three songs that are in this category. So it's like, okay. And a lot of times it's like, okay, can we beat any of this? And almost always the answer is yes. I think no one's written their best song. Everyone's best song is ahead of them, you know? And so typically towards the end of a record, like even for instance, the Stained record that I just produced, we had maybe 10 songs ready. And I just really didn't think we had a single yet. And that was hard to say, but I had to say it. That's why they, they hired me. And I said, guys, like, I don't think we have a first single. And I think we're missing something that's like your own band sound. I think we're missing like a mud shovel type of song, you know? And so I listened to a couple more demos and I was like, okay, like this one could work. And I heard this riff. It was really slow. It was like very ballady, but I was like, there's a mood to this. And I just started thinking about it. And I was like, what if we, so I grabbed the, the guitar and I was like, what if we kind of played it way faster? And then I handed it back to the guitarist, Mike, and he played it faster. And we essentially wrote a whole song around that with the feel that I knew we needed. And funny enough, it ended up being the first single and it went number one at radio. And Love it. I was very proud of it because it was, you know, how I told you that typically the first song is the one like this one, the last two songs are the two first singles. And so, um, you know, every project is different in that way. But sometimes I think if we all, if we did all pre-production on all the songs right away, we would have missed those two songs because you're already too far in. No, you're right. And splitting it up gives you a little bit of a bird's eye view of the project. That's a really good point. Cause yeah, you're right. So many people would just be like, okay, cool. We got 10 songs rehearsed. Like, that's it. Let's go to the studio. And like all yeah. new ideas are, are cut off right now, you know, and, and you do need to be open to having those new ideas flow out of them, out of the musicians and, and, you know, turn that into something cool. And, uh, yeah, I think that again, it's like it's it's that exercise of just like constantly writing, you know, and just seeing what what comes out of it. Because um, I I think you're right. Like people's people's uh, best song is the one that's still to come, you know, or or yeah. you know, like as long as as long as you keep that mentality, I think you'll get better and better as a writer. And yeah. and maybe you write that song that is better than all the songs on the album, and then you're like, you know what? Like maybe we need to rewrite all of this, and you end up with a better album. You know, like sometimes that happens too, right? It's yeah. not just like the one song. There's that- a there's a quote I'm going to butcher, but I, it was Rick Rubin, and he says, "Make art, and while people are deciding if it's good or not, keep making more art." And like that sticks with me. The quote's really close, so you'll yeah. you know we'll have to <laughs> figure that out. But um, it's true. It's like while like you don't, it's so subjective. You know, an A and R can hear a song and be like meh, and then three days later hear it and go like holy shit, because whatever mood you're in, whatever you could have mm-hmm. wa- watched something on the news that just like really pissed you off. And you're just like not feeling that, you know? Yeah. And so you have to really um, understand that when turning a song in, is that like, it, it may not get the reaction you hope the biggest song of my career, the, the label did not respond at all. It did not hit me with a reply. I'm like, all right, well, here we go. You know, and then they hit me with the, oh, we knew this was a smash. The moment we heard it, I'm like, oh, I bet you did. <laughs> you know, but like, whatever, everyone's allowed to take their victory yeah. lap. But, yeah. but having the belief in yourself to keep creating is the most important part. 
Of course. And I think like rejection is a healthy thing, you know, like not everyone's going to love the song and and that's cool. You just move on, you keep pushing and eventually yeah. you write something better. You know, that's, it's a, uh, you can't let that kind of stuff like stop you in your tracks and, and halt your career as a, re- a result of someone else's mood that day, you know, or whatever it is. Right. Absolutely. And no one talks about the losses. So when, so if you're up and coming and you see all these people we all just post about the things we want about, right? And you don't hear about all the, you know, if I take five calls with my manager in a week, like three of them might be bad and two of them are good. It's just like, but you don't know that when you see the victory laps, you know, and you see the highlight reel. So like we all deal with rejection. If you're going to be in the music industry, you have to be really comfortable with it. I mean, and even then, like if I was an actor, oh my gosh, like the amount of rejection you get as an actor, (laughs) which is probably similar, but like, I just see it from a different scope and I'm like, oh, that's gotta be so tough. And someone (laughs) probably feels that way about music, right? They're just like, it's, it's, it's a nature of the beast. Yeah. Well, it's funny because you were talking about how you're a big fan of Drake. And, uh, I was at a conference recently where, uh, Noah 40 should be was was talking he was the keynote speaker there and um and for people who don't know that that's Drake's producer um and uh and he was talking about how he was talking about this idea the same idea of like rejection and and he even said he's like I'll give Drake 100 songs he likes two of them yeah you know and he's like I might go through 98 failures before he finally finds the two that he likes. And those are the ones that count. And like, then like our career blows up as a result of those, you know? And, and it's interesting. It's like so many people just get beaten down by that and feel like I'm not good enough. Like, why am I working with these people? Like they don't appreciate my art or whatever, you know, like there's so many feelings that can come as a result of that. But I think it really does go to show that like, you just have to be persistent and, you know, things can come, good things will come out of it. You just have to be willing to take the rejection and, you know, move forward and all that stuff. So yeah, man. Totally. uh, And, and other, another thing I can add is if you're up and coming, don't read YouTube comments. (laughs) Don't read. If I listen to people talking about how the, my lead vocal is too loud, this mix sucks. The vocal is too loud. And then the next time I get up to the computer, I'm like, is the vocal too loud? I'm like, no, like, no, like, don't let what you know. It's like if I had a restaurant, if the last place I'd want to look is a Yelp review, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the people love the food, just move on with their day. They're not sitting there talking about it. Yeah. So it's like you really have to, you really have to have thick skin. Absolutely, man. Well, dude, this has been a really great conversation. And I think, you know, like I said, there's a lot of people listening to this who are writers themselves and who, just need to hear what you're talking about here today, you know, as far as like pushing yourself and and the rejection and and growth and all that kind of stuff. I think that these are all very really positive topics. And, you know, I think if people start implementing everything you're talking about here, I think they're going to see massive growth in their skills and and hopefully hopefully, hopefully some hits get generated from this episode, you know, like, you know, from people just like trying and, and pushing themselves. So um, thank you so much for for taking the time to to do this and and uh you know, getting into all this stuff with us today. Um, if people want to learn more about you or maybe even potentially work with you, that kind of thing, what, what's the best way for them to follow you online? The best way is probably either my website or just any of the socials. I'm easy to get a hold of and I'm happy to answer any other questions that anyone might have. I, I do love giving advice. I love helping people with like real issues, you know, like, like it's just tough sometimes to get um, real answers at a had a like complicated questions and the music industry is very complicated. I highly recommend that people get educated on the business of music as well. 
Because it's one thing to have the creative aspect down, but if you don't get the business part of it right afterwards, <laughs> it can put you into an equally troubling hole. Yeah, you need both sides for sure. Like read Donald Passman's book on, you know, everything you need to know about the music industry. Like there's some, there's some really, really invaluable information in that book. And just like learn, learn from other people's mistakes instead of, instead of being the example, you know? <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> Lots of great resources out there for, for sure to learn all that stuff. And, you know, some of it might be outdated or whatever, but there's still like a lot of great gold in, in a lot of those things too, right? So it's just like, like you said, like learn, let other people set an example and learn from their mistakes and, and uh, push forward with that. So, dude, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And uh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So that was my chat with Eric Ron. And if you're a songwriter, I think you got a lot of really great advice in this episode. And, you know, everything that he covered as far as, uh, you know, overcoming writer's block or, or at least preventing writer's block and, you know, really exercising your skills and just the idea of rejection, all that kind of stuff. I think these are all really, really important lessons that anyone who is serious about being a songwriter needs to learn from. You know, like this is real world stuff. And if you're serious about doing this, then you need to uh, actually be implementing a lot of what he talked about here. So yeah, I really enjoyed what he shared here. And I thought it was really cool learning about his experience in working with Godsmack and Stained and all those kinds of bands. I think it just really goes to show what's possible when you do all of these exercises that he talked about here with practicing your songwriting and how it can all come together and turn into something really big and really powerful. So yeah, I really enjoyed that episode. I hope that you did too. If you did, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And if you're looking for help with your productions, if you're not sure what you should be doing as far as the recording side of things or editing or mixing, maybe you've got some songs that have just been sitting on your hard drive and Maybe they, they haven't been released because you consider them to be just demo quality. If you're looking to amplify the quality of those recordings and you're looking to make something that sounds pro from your home studio and you want the clarity needed to feel confident in your process and proud of the music that you're creating from home, well, inside of my program Amplitude, you'll get just that. In this program, you're going to get a step-by-step beginning-to-end workflow with your audio production, covering everything from the recording stage, editing stage, mixing stage, plus you get personalized, actionable feedback on your tracks. So as you're working on your songs, you can send them in and get feedback on specifically what to do to help elevate your songs. You know, maybe that's just a matter of some volume or EQ or compression or effects, whatever it is. We will give you personalized advice to help make sure that your songs are meeting the mark that you expect to hit. So if you're struggling to get your production sounding pro and you want one-on-one help to get you to that level, then definitely make sure to check out Amplitude. If you visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude, that's where you can find out all the information about the program there. And I'd love to hop on a call with you. I'd love to learn more about what kind of projects you're currently working on to see if I can truly help you. And if it does seem like I can truly help, then I would love to invite you into the program and we can work together. And I would love to help you complete your songs and get you super stoked about them. So once again, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude to find out more information. All right, with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com. Thanks for listening.